My new book is out, How to Be a Capitalist Without Any Capital. It hit the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list, and I just wanted to say thank you. I hope you get it at capitalistbook.com. Here's what user Jay Eggleston said in an Amazon review. Warning, this book is addicting, is Nathan the new Tim Ferriss. He said, I met Nathan during my college days when he was still CEO of Hale. I knew he was inspiration since the day I met him. The book is totally a Nathan Latka original, and this is the new four-hour work week. Warning, though, it is addicting. I'm not sure how long I've been reading it now, and the only thing that is making me from put it down is the dreaded workday tomorrow. Six people found that helpful. Get the book today at capitalistbook.com. He founded uh, Redmonk in 2013, uh, now scaled over 2,000 paying customers uh, on just 2.5 million bucks raised, which I love. They've passed about uh, 600 grand per month in revenue. That's up doubled year over year, so about 300 grand a month just back in October of 2017. 24% gross revenue churn annually, but expansion more than covers that. So net revenue retention annually, well over 100%. Willing to spend up to 14 months of lifetime value on acquisition in the worst case scenario. They're well below that on probably most of their signups, but healthy economic. They've got a team of 66 folks between Waterloo, Toronto, and other locations. This is the Top Entrepreneurs Podcast, where founders share how they started their companies and got filthy rich or crash and burn. Each episode features revenue numbers, customer counts, and other insider information that creates business news headlines. We went from a couple hundred thousand dollars to 2.7 million. They had no money when they started the company. It was $160 million, which is the size of many IPOs. We're bootstrapped. We have like 22,000 customers. With over 5 million downloads in a very short amount of time, major outlets like Inc. are calling us the fastest growing business show on iTunes. I'm your host, Nathan Latka, and here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Latif Nanji. He's the co-founder and CEO of a company called Road Monk, a product road mapping platform that enables clients like Coca-Cola, Citibank, MasterCard, and Adobe to visualize and collaborate on strategic plans. All right, Latif, are you ready to take us to the top? Absolutely. All right. So this is like, I mean, is this, is this like, you know, Trello or Basecamp for the enterprise? Uh, in a sense, uh, yes. But really what we actually do is we think of ourselves as the mezzanine layer above those tools. In a lot of cases, tactical teams need to still stay in the Trellos and Jiras and Asanas of the world, and we're not there to compete with them. Um, we look at ourselves as a way to make it easy to visualize and manage and create plans that executive stakeholders or stakeholders that are not used to working in those day-to-day tools really need some level of visibility into. Interesting. Okay, very good. And and give me a sense of, you know, we obviously know the monthly kind of averages in terms of price points for those tools. On your tool, what's the average company paying per year, would you say? Yeah, so we have sort of three different segments, uh, but on average across, you know, sort of the mainstream of customers, you're looking around $4,000 per year. Okay, good. Okay, so so not, not, not super enterprise, but, you know, bigger than SMB, I would say. Yeah, so we do have a whole segment of customers that are in mid-market and enterprise that do pay in the more traditional numbers, which would be somewhere between 25 to 100K, just depending on if they use uh, take advantage of some of our security features. So we do offer uh, virtual private clouds for the enterprise, as well as just larger seat volumes, which come in at platform pricing. That's interesting. So are those your two main leverage points in terms of your pricing axes to drive expansion revenue? Uh, yes, as we also have a per seat model as well, which is more traditional, and we use that. And then on top of the enterprise, they have other requests that we've enabled us to grow our business and expansion beyond the traditional per seat pricing. Interesting. So seats, security features, and some other product features. Exactly. Interesting. Okay, put all this on a timeline. When did you launch the company? 
2013 is when we started and founded the company in January. Okay. Um, and then we launched into market at the end of 2014. So we've been in market for about four years now. That's great. And what have you scaled to in terms of total customers? Yeah, so we've got, uh, without like getting directly, but we're within 2,000 to 3,000 customers right now in that range. Fairly healthy, yeah. So I mean, look, uh, you know, taking the 2,000, we'll go on the minimum since you gave a range. If you do 2,000 times that 4,000 price point, I mean, what does that put you at? If I do the division, 600 grand a month, something like that, is that right? We're about there, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. A little above or a little below? Above. Above. When, um, what has the growth rate been like over the past 12 months? Where are we at a year ago? Uh, yeah, so we've been, uh, 2016 was the triple, and then we've been constantly doubling each year since then. That's pretty, okay, so if you're north of 600 today in terms of monthly uh, revenue, you know, you're about, what, three 300 grand about a, a year ago? Uh, yes, I think a little bit less than that, but around there, yeah. Okay, interesting. And what's driven most of the growth over the past 12 months? Is it expansion across the, you know, the old cohort, or is it new customers? Yeah, it's around 60-40 split between new and expansion. We're seeing really healthy expansion simply because of the viral the viral nature of the software. I think a lot of tools that are product-led growth, just like we are, have found ways within the tool to do the land and expand model. So we start with a few seats, make a few champions really successful, and then from there we see other product managers who are our target primary audience for this tool then go and talk, since they have a lot of influence within the organization, whether it's on the executive branch or towards other um, you know, cross-functional teams that work and need visibility into what's going on in the plan. So how effective has that been? What is your expansion on a cohort from 12 months ago, typically? Yeah. So, well, on a cohort basis, it's different varying month by month, but if you look at sort of averages, it's around at least 40% of the, you know, our monthly, uh, net revenue or net new MRR is going to be from expansion. Okay, let me repeat that back to make sure I get it. 40% of your net of revenue you add in a given month is going to be from expansion revenue. Yeah, so let's say on a month okay. you add 50K MRR, 20 of that would be from expansion. Got it. But, I, but I'm curious on a cohort basis, because this gets into churn. Like, What's your revenue churn per year? Yeah, so we don't necessarily disclose those numbers uh, for now, just because it's a, it's a bit of a competitive space. We don't want to get through that. But we're I would say we're around, we're slightly below average. I think we're doing pretty healthy. Um, so I would say it's somewhere between on a gross basis between two and three. Okay. That's not, and that's monthly or annually. Yeah. It's on an annual basis. It's 2%. Oh, sorry. Monthly basis it's around two, two and a half percent. Got it. Two So call it 24% revenue churn per year. It sounds like you have healthy expansion though. Are you above a hundred percent in terms of net revenue retention? Absolutely. We have net negative churn. That's great. Yeah. It's always, it's always fascinating to me too. Like the people use those, those are basically this, you consider those the same thing, right? Net negative revenue churn and net revenue expansion being above a hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's just interesting. Some people choose to like, I guess, think about it positively. So they talk about retention. Others think about it negatively. So they think about churn, which is a mindset thing. It is. So I think you were talking to investors, they love talking about retention. They're less worried about this net negative thing. They want to understand retention on a cohort basis, understanding which cohorts are mature, if they've been, you know, gone through a full annual cycle, if you know you're billing in that manner. So there's all those dynamics. Net negative churn is probably something founders sometimes tend towards, but it just depends on, you know, who's the audience and what yeah. kind of person's looking at the it's just funny to me you- it's basically because it's basically you know revenue or sorry churn plus like retention right like they equal 100 percent no matter which way you cut the dice it's just which side you want to focus on exactly. okay good so healthy healthy expansion there and then walk me through i mean you, you launched in 2013 it sounds like you really kick things into gear 2014 first 100 customers where, where'd they come from 
You know what, Nathan? We had no idea where they were going to come from. <laughs> we just put up a, a website. We had a product, and we connected our Stripe, uh, you know, the Stripe API. Within the first 90 days, we had 50 customers. I remember on December 31, 2014, at like we wanted to get from 49 to 50, and we called a couple people that were in trial. We'll sell them, we'll give them a heavy discount, just so that optically we could, when we were starting to raise capital, we just showed them that we got 50 customers in 90 days. So it really just came simply by SEO and marketing. That was the channel we had. We had written some content. We hadn't obviously done a full throttle because it had been only just uh, 90 days, but we had... I would say on average at the time, probably about 10 to 15 signups a day. So very modest compared to where we are today. And then from there, we were able to do some pretty great conversion because tools on the market were still um, very early on in this particular space. Interesting. So, okay. So first 50 customers came mainly from SEO and content. Um, what is the team today and how many folks are, are, are you know focused on SEO content sales marketing? Yeah, so we have 66 people today at Roadmonk, and our sales and CS team is about, I'd say, 14, but mostly CS predominantly. We have only two salespeople. And then in the marketing side, we have about 10 people. Interesting. Curious question here. Do your CS people carry any kind of quota? They do have targets in which they have to hit, and they're not comped comp in the traditional sense like you need to do, you know, 100,000 in expansion over the quarter or something of that nature. We actually do it based on the quick ratio. So we look at both um, expansion, contraction, churn, and new if they're closing any deals. Usually they're able to do any transactional deals, so deals that are likely smaller than $5,000. And then from there, our sales team would take over if they're larger deals and have to go a traditional through a traditional procurement process. So so I'm curious, I want to dive into that. How do you set, because I'm seeing the CS role really the companies that have healthy expansion have really smart CS teams. And I'm trying to understand how CEOs like yourself are motivating these CS folks. Cause these aren't people you're just hiring off the street. I mean, these are very talented people, right? So when you say you motivate them that like there is a target, but it's not, it's not a quota carrying role. Like what, what does that target actually sound like? Yeah. So for example, um, so they have a portfolio of customers. So we have to start there. They, uh, they own a segment of, let's say, somewhere between two to 400 customers, depending on the tenure of that particular CS rep, the experience and the relationship they, relationships they've built with customers. Um, so they own that. And what they ha- they're responsible for on a month-to-month basis is both the expansion and contraction. So it's a ratio. So basically, let's say, you know, in the quick ratio world, you want to be aiming for, for every $4 you bring in, um, you don't want to be losing more than a dollar. That's sort of like the sweet spot. So let's say, for example, they're comped on that and they get X amount of dollars each month or quarter if they shoot over, let's call it 4.25. But if they get between 3.75 and 4.25, they're then comped another dollar amount. Um, so this has been working sort of early on in the business. But as we continue to grow, we're looking at new models that are not just focused on both expansion and contraction or churn, it's also like saying, here is the expansion business as a dollar amount that we want you to focus on. So we're seeing, we're starting to experiment that transition, um, but we haven't fully gone over to that side just yet. Interesting. So let me role play with you for a second. Uh, you, I'm, I'm a CS, you know, person at Roadmonk. We're having our one-on-one and my number is not four in one out. It's like four in three out. And you're going, Nathan, what happened? I'm saying Latif, 
this sales guy like closed this huge hundred thousand dollar ACV deal and promised all these things that we can't actually deliver on. Like I had no chance they churned. And that's why it's three bucks out instead of $1 out. That's why I missed my target. That's why I'm not hitting my comp. I'm leaving. Sorry. I didn't hit my comp. You know, I need to make more than this per month. How do you handle the, you know, I'm being a little facetious, but you get my point. Absolutely. So, uh, thankfully that's never happened here. And the reason that hasn't happened is because our two sales reps have been really highly educated on our product. We don't oversell. We've made sure that when we look at an RFP or requirements that we match those requirements. And if anything does need to be delivered, that's on roadmap. Um, we are really aligned with the product teams. So we'll go back to our director of product and say, this deal is contingent on X, which rarely happens. We try to make sure we sell what we have today. I think that's a really important piece of, I wouldn't want to say feedback or advice, but I think something that we embrace internally because we wanted to avoid signing a 100K contract and then having exactly this scenario. So for example, when we signed uh, one of the largest companies in the world onto the platform, we said, we need to deliver this in you know six months. So we said to the customer that we're going to take a year to deliver this. Here are the milestones, and we made sure to hit all of them. Um, but we make sure we don't set up CS for being unsuccessful by trying to oversell because we don't have a hardcore sales culture here. We only have two reps. We have you know nearly, obviously, a, a significant number of customers in the thousands. So for us, we've been really cognizant of keeping... Uh, true of our values in that sense. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so what? Just to be clear, the the metrics that you have set with your CS people is it four in one out? Is that the target they all have? Yeah, it's roughly around there. There's there's some to be simple and clean. It's around there. Yeah. Okay. And if they hit that, there's a. It's not necessarily like a percentage of like expansion revenue basis, but there's just like a monetary reward each quarter for hitting that goal. Yeah, it's X amount of dollars. Interesting. And it's the same no matter what the CS rep is, or is if they're more advanced, they'll get higher, or if they're more junior, they'll get lower. That's correct. Yeah. So there is people that are more tenured and more experienced. And so it's a based on, it's also based on negotiation of comp at the beginning of the year, but we do have rough bands. So it's not like someone's getting triple or something like that. They're all very roughly within the same ballpark. And generally, uh, more tenured CS folks are getting the larger ACV accounts. Um, no, actually, I think, no, we like to actually spit it amongst them. And especially if there's somebody, we don't actually have too many juniors on the team, but if we do hire someone junior or for the ones that are kind of moving on towards intermediate, we do actually give them a big account. Um, we just make sure to walk them through them because they need the opportunity to learn as well. And so before we hand them that account, we actually go through an education process of handing them off. We teach them about managing champions, relationship building, understanding how to navigate that type of organization. So we do give them the tools and the education so that they can move their career forward. That isn't, and so, you know, we have tier one, two, and three customers, tier one being the largest. And so we try to distribute that evenly across our CS reps. And so that it's not just all the big accounts owned by one person or a couple or a handful of people. Um, there are some key accounts that do involve multiple CS reps simply because of the size of those organizations and the number of seats they have today. It's interesting. Thanks for sharing all that. It's fascinating to kind of understand how individuals are motivated and how then they fit in with the whole part of the team and how you make sure the team is are helping other team members as well. So that, that's helpful to understand. 66 people, uh, where are they spread out from or, or between? Uh, so we have two, we're co-located. I wouldn't call us fully remote. We have two offices, one in Waterloo, which is where I went to school and kind of built out my chops as a founder and, and a product manager. And so 
that was a great environment for developers because of the University of Waterloo being an engineering school. And then our operations team is in Toronto. And then we have a couple people across London, New York, and San Francisco. Okay. So Waterloo, Toronto, and some other remote spots. Last question here on economics. Um, how aggressive are you being uh, in terms of payback period? Are you willing to wait up to a year to get paid back or what? Yeah, I think our payback period is around 14 months. If you roll in everything, if you kind of, you know, the calculation can get a little bit skewed depending on what you add in. But yeah, we're happy to wait back for a year. I think the way we look at it is creation of value to the user is number one, time to value, making sure that they get that value and hit the North Star within, you know, 60 to 90 days. And then if you do that, then you know you're going to have the LTV at a higher rate, and over time, that payback period is going to be reduced. Yeah, you said earlier your your kind of average ACV starting is about four grand, so you're willing to spend call it forty two, forty three hundred bucks to acquire that customer. Uh, a full that's on that's worst case, fully weighted case. Yes, that's great. And uh, bootstrapped, or have you guys raised? Uh, we've raised a little bit, so we raised a two and a half million US, um, and we are been really. So the couple of things on the economic side, number one, we're in Canada, so we just get that 30% exchange rate. Number two is yeah. we collect the majority of our contracts, call it just 80-20 rule, annually. So if you were in the Valley and you instead of collecting 80-20, you were collecting 50-50 annual and monthly, I ran the numbers. We would have had to have raised two years ago just over $10 million, right? So just the dynamic dynamics of those two levers alone have completely changed the way we can increase our valuation, allow the founders and the team to be more focused in on the business operationally, and not have to worry about doing an early Series A, but doing a later A or B when we choose, such that we can inflect growth. And so there is just a couple of levers that have given us those advantages simply by our geography and the way we've collected cash. Yeah. Are you considering an additional raise today or in the near future? Uh I'll abstain, but my smile <laughs> should give it away. Yeah, yeah. Well, so um, it sounds like you don't need it. It sounds like you're building a healthy business. But but why is now the right time to raise capital? Are you just like where the economy is or, or the global markets or what? Oh, okay. So, yeah, just in a general conversation sense, today is a great day to raise money. There is so much dry powder out there. I mean, it's it's the macro environment feels very much like those days when anyone could raise money. So if organizations should be trying to stuff their coffers if they can get a good valuation and close on reasonable terms really fast. And it doesn't skew um, the dynamics of their organizations, i.e. they don't have to grow too high up into a valuation. So, you know, if your run, your run rate is like, you know, two or three million and you start to raise at like 30 or 40 or something egregious, you're going to have that huge challenge and then a down round on the next one. So you want to make sure you avoid those dynamics. But if you're running between five to 20 million and you've got those healthy things, I think it's just a great time to raise. The macro climate's great. I don't know how long it sustains for given the current um, climate. So for, for me, just generally speaking, I think it's a good time to raise. So let's see if again, generally and hypothetically, if a company like that was around your size uh, was raising, I mean, are you thinking, I mean, what if you did raise, what kind of capital would you want to bring in in a traditional kind of series A, series B? I mean, five, 10, 15? Less. So for yeah, so for us, I would do more than less, just simply because one, we've raised so little to date, so we just hold such strong metrics. Two, I love the market we're in, so I would be raising well over ten million. I would think would be the number for us, uh, and then yeah, so ten to ten to 
15 would seem like a really great raise. We also just don't have the the expenditures and burn rates that typical Valley companies do just simply based on the cost of an engineer. Um, it's it's like one and a half X less or at least two X less than it is in the in the Valley. And also the loyalty in Canadians market, the Canadian market is just really high because people's reputations are really big here because the communities are just so small, even though the city is big. Yep. Uh, are you cash flow positive or, or basically break even today? Yes. That's great. So you have all the leverage. That's wonderful. All right. Let's wrap up here with the famous five. Number one, what's your favorite business book? Oh, wow. I wrote this down. Oh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) it would be Losing My Virginity by Richard Branson. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying? I just gave it away. Richard Branson. He's (laughs) definitely someone whose lifestyle I admire. That's great. Number three, what's your favorite online tool for building your business besides your own? Wow. That's a good question. Um, besides road monk, I would say, I I thought it was just favorite online tool. So favorite online tool for building my business. Well, what's your favorite online tool? That's fine. Okay. Well, I'm a big fan of Goodreads and pocket. They keep all of the knowledge centralized for me that I need to. So when I need to go pick up a book or read an article, it's at my fingertips. Number four, how many hours of sleep are you getting every night? Minimum eight, and I don't have an alarm. I love it. That's great. I, I, I love hearing you just like own that. So many people are like, oh, I wonder if it's like a weakness or my investors are going to hear this and think I'm not working hard. But you know what? Give, give you against Bill Gates, where Bill Gates gets no sleep for 48 hours and you get like 16 hours. I think you beat Bill Gates every time. 100%. And it's, <laughs> it's crazy. Like if you think about human history, like 100,000 years ago or even 50, 20,000 years ago, there was no clocks. There was no alarm clock. You just woke up on your own circadian rhythm. And why should we just have this jarring thing wake us up? It's crazy. It is crazy. All right. Uh, and what's your situation? Married, single, kiddos? Single. Sing- no kids? Nope. And how old are you? Nephew- nephews and nieces, 34. That's good. All right. Last question. What do you wish your 20-year-old self knew? I would say that... Building a higher degree of empathy and emotional intelligence will build better human connections than just using raw intelligence and being trying to be smart. Guys, there you have it. Start building your EQ, emotional intelligence, as early as you can. Uh, Latif founded uh, Red Monk in 2013. Uh, now scaled over 2,000 paying customers uh, on just 2.5 million bucks raised, which I love. They've passed about uh, 600 grand per month in revenue. That's up doubled year over year. So about 300 grand a month just back in October of 2017. 24% gross revenue churn annually, but expansion more than covers that. So net revenue retention annually, well over 100%. Willing to spend up to 14 months of lifetime value on acquisition in the worst case scenario. They're well below that on probably most of their signups, but Healthy Economics, they've got a team of 66 folks between Waterloo, Toronto, and other locations. Latif, thanks for taking us to the top. Thanks, Nathan.